Welcome to episode 181 of Redboard Rewind. We have a new guest on the show today, someone who has been doing excellent work over on the Trust the Profits YouTube channel with a couple of shows each and every week. Also, shout out to Sarah Ibalwi for mentioning his name, for having me get him on the podcast. It's Matthew DeSantis. Me and Matthew go over three races from this past Saturday at the fairgrounds. Those races were 8, 12, and 13. And some angles that we talk about are how it's okay to fade favorites who have some very, very glaring weaknesses, such as first time over the track, or maybe not the best pace scenario. We also talk about the two upsets in the Oaks and Derby Point races from the fairgrounds. All that and much, much more. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story in this cycle. We go back and forth. We go back and forth. It ain't good for me. Why we do this for? We go back and forth. Won't do this no more. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest on this week's Redboard Rewind. It's a newbie on the show, but it's someone that Sarah Ibaldi actually said I should hang out with and give a shot to. It's Matthew DeSantis. Matthew, how are you? Doing great, Spencer. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you to Sarah for recommending me for this week's episode. It's it's funny. I've kind of gone through my my normal group of cast the last you know couple months. So it's always <laughs> good to get that fresh blood in. And you know, having done the show for a couple of years, it's... Who haven't I had on the show? And then it's like, she's like, have you had Matt on? I'm like, absolutely not. Glad to reach out. Glad that you could come on the show tonight. We're going to talk about some races from the fairgrounds. While we were off the air, you kind of gave me your background being uh, a person who grew up in horse racing, Penn National, a couple mm-hmm. friends in Louisville and Saratoga. Uh, how much have you done handicapping the fairgrounds as a, as a circuit that you really cover more, you know, Kentucky Derby wise or it's how, explain to me how you kind of look at the fairgrounds. Yeah, it's more of a derby prep type of thing where I just kind of follow the derby prep trail around. So I don't do fairgrounds on a weekly basis by any stretch. Uh, But uh, this time of year, obviously, doing it for the LeCompte Day, doing it for the Risen Star, doing it for the Louisiana Derby. So definitely hitting it on those big days. Uh, And, you know, I try to stay in tune with what's going on down there, obviously, talking about the turf course down at uh, fairgrounds is always a hot topic of conversation, but just knowing general trends of how the track's playing, things like that. But uh, primarily on the Derby trail, Uh, family affair, dad taking me to Penn national taught me how to read a race form. And, you know, I think in terms of the type of player I am, I try to be realistic. I don't try to beat chalk in every single race. I try to feel confident when I do select chalk and I try to target very specific races where I feel like I can always get a big price. A lot of times maiden claiming races, maiden races in general, I like targeting in a lot of instances, especially for big prices, which was not particularly good for the fairgrounds mm. uh, last Saturday. But, you know, those are the types of races I like to focus on. Equipment changes, second on a surface, second off a layoff. I, I mean, you give me a horse that is switching surfaces and stepping up in class. I usually love playing those types of horses at a big price. Uh, And anybody who listens to my stuff knows that I'm a sucker for a lightly raced horse with improving speed figures that's taking a big jump up. So uh, those are the types of horses I like to play and the angles I like to play. Uh, Now, are you more of a paramutual player? Do you play in tournaments? Where do you kind of stand in that front? 
Yeah, more of a paramutual player. Uh, and I will also play in some tournaments, particularly Stable Duel, which is more of a mm-hmm. like a DFS uh, type of tournament. So I'll play in those, and uh, but more paramutually on a day like Saturday at the fairgrounds. I think it's always good, you know, when people, you know, always bring up, you know, are you a tournament player or paramutual? And then you bring up stable duel. I was fortunate enough. Bremont had me do a couple challenges uh, over there for Lone Star Park when they had first started mm-hmm. to get stable duel out. And it's such a good, interesting way. And everyone talks about, you know, quote unquote, the sports dying out. It's all going to be dinosaurs and there's no young, young group coming in. And obviously you, me, Sarah, you know, I'm not going to say we're young by any chance. I mean, I'm 32, <laughs> but it's, you know. I'm still the youngest guy in the OTB by a fair margin, I, t- I tend to say. <laughs> and having something like Stable Duel where, hey, you don't need to really, I mean, sure, you could look at the racing form, but this is a yeah. general DFS idea. Are you into sports betting? Cool. Let me show you this way as well. It's not so complicated mm-hmm. as the paramutual side where there are all different wagers, whereas it's almost you want people to start off by doing tournaments because it's just, you know, pick your favorite horse, pick your second favorite horse and go from there. I've always thought stable duel is going to be an interesting spot in the racing landscape. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I haven't been playing as much recently and I really probably should get back into it. Yeah. It's a really interesting game. And I would say it's helped me identify long shots more effectively because the way it's structured, you Mm -hmm. have to use a certain number of long shots in order to stay under the salary cap. And I think it's made me a better vertical exotic player where I identify horses that might be 12 to one, 15 to one, on the morning line who I don't think are going to win, but I think are going to outrun their odds. And then I can start using them in exactas trifectas. And that's really helped my play. I think a great deal. And just the way I start thinking about races. And I think a lot of us get focused on those horizontal pick four, pick five, pick six sequences. And sometimes we lose sight of some really great potential value in verticals. Uh, listen, vertical play for me, I'm not so much a try and super, but I, I definitely love, uh, exact as for sure, whether it's, you know, people say, oh, don't never box. For me, you can box depending on if I have a sample size of 50 races and listen, I'm, my ROI is good. People will say like, oh, well, you're losing five or six points of value. Listen, man, if I'm positive at that point, like you can't really <laughs> complain about it. And for me, if I'm picking a favorite and two long shots and it's coming like that, I, I get their point where you can play, you know, just those singles and, you know, really dig down deep and try to figure out where the value is. But for the beginning mm-hmm. player, I really do think one of my favorite wagers when I was teaching people how to gamble at Saratoga would be, you know, put your two favorite horses on top, put them underneath and then add two long shots. It still costs you $6 compared to a box and you get an extra horse underneath that. A yep. lot of times I can't tell you how many times I've played a three horse box and that fourth horse that I like comes and beats me for a second. It literally... <laughs> rip your hair out type of stuff so uh verticals compared to horizontal you said you're more of a vertical player what do you think kind of made it more simple for you is just the fact that you're looking at one race specifically compared to looking at you know what could be two turf races two dirt races and one's a mile when one's only four and a half furlongs is is that kind of the way you look at it (laughs) yeah it was that and then also there's just a practical nature of it when i started playing horse racing a lot of times it was just not having the time necessarily to cap five or six races in a row and just going to the track and kind of just saying, you know, like, I'm just going to focus on betting, winning this one race and trying to win, you know, this specific race. And it's still a little bit like that. You know, I have a pretty regular nine to five job as a lot of people do. And so, you know, a lot of times it's not about put stringing together a sequence as much as going, I'm going to devote my time to handicapping maybe this one race or two races, maybe do a daily double or something like that, but really focus on maybe a little bit of a smaller scale, just uh, based upon some of my experiences and background with that. And I know you're a, uh... 
obviously a professor. Uh, not the first pro- professor I've had on. Marshall Graham gets that honor. But <laughs> oh yes, you, absolutely. How do you feel that being you know type of that analytical mind? Do you think that helps you mm-hmm. in this game or or it hurts you? It's a good question. I think it helps me. So my background is in political science and particularly quantitative methodology. So looking at numbers and data analytics is something that I actually do with my regular everyday job. And so applying that to horse racing, I think is beneficial. I think the biggest thing that has helped me is that being a professor, you're used to communicating new ideas to people. So just being able to communicate horse racing ideas to like my friends and family has actually been really beneficial and gotten a lot of people into the sport because of that. And so I'm used to starting with somebody just as a student would come to my class without any knowledge of American government. And I have 16 weeks to get them prepared to be good to become a well-engaged citizen. I, you know, I kind of approach teaching horse racing the same way in terms of helping explain the nuances and the very basics, though, and and helping grow the sport in that way. So I think that's a way in which being a professor has been really cool. I, I feel as well, just being able to teach someone in general, A, I think it helps you in your handicapping process because for people who have been doing it 5, 10, 15 years, having to go back to the bare basics, mm-hmm. for me, you know, we talk all the time about class dropping and someone's like, well, Explain that to me and being able to realize, you know, oh, wow, if I look back at my last 25 to 30 races in the sample, I'm taking a lot of class droppers that just aren't winning, which is usually not the way the the analytics go with that. Usually you want class droppers, but Mm -hmm. it can help you figure out your own mistakes. I can't tell you how many times for me, I'm more of a class and a speed type handicapper, uh, Mm -hmm. speed being pace or uh, buyer figures. And how many times I see a class dropper with just crushing buyer figures. I know the horse is going to get bet off the board, goes to two to five. And I've had to pass a lot of those races and I've had to take a step back, whether it's teaching my wife or teaching a friend. And they'll ask me certain questions about class risers. And then all of a sudden I'm finding six, seven, eight to one shots that are sneaky Mm -hmm. when maybe the class dropper isn't the right way. Maybe they are one race over the top. And if they're one race over the top, then why are they dropping them? If they've been running so well, the last couple of races. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I can't tell you the number of times that I've been explaining a race to a friend or a family member. And in the midst of explaining the race, I start to realize like, oh, I should like this other horse a lot more than I do. <laughs> uh, you know, and why did I, why am I overlooking this horse? And so uh, this horse is checking a lot of boxes or maybe to your point, like this horse checks a lot of boxes that I like to use, but they've not been particularly successful lately. So maybe I've been thinking about this wrong or just getting off my game plan. So uh, I, I agree. It, it helps to always return to the basics. And it, I just on a personal level, it's part of the reason I love being a professor is it's also just fun teaching people and getting people excited about a sport uh, that a lot of people, you know, may not know much about. I think as well. And everyone talks, you know, how hard the learning curve is in racing. And for me, I think, if I think about a lot of the other sports out there and just analytical, even chess and stuff like that, I think horse oh, racing yeah. still has such a difficult learning curve. So when you can get the basics down, whether it's a stable duel or a tournament and just kind of, you know, it's not so much, Hey, look at the Pletcher and Chad Brown horse. That's about to run today. But you know, Oh, you've noticed that this horse is the only horse on lead. Well, that would probably be a check, a check mark next to that horse. Cause this one's mm-hmm. going to be lone speed. And then when someone finally gets their first winner, like they, you just, you can tell when someone's hooked, And you can Mm -hmm. also tell when, you know, after a win, maybe they're just always never going to be as excited about it as you are, but they're still going to, you know, be willing to come once or twice a season, whether it's Saratoga, Churchill, et cetera. Absolutely. It's funny. I was just having a conversation with two friends over Christmas and they live in Washington, D.C. They just recently moved to Minnesota. And I was telling uh, my friend's girlfriend about Canterbury. 
Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, we I should come up and we should go to the track together. And she started asking all these questions about horse racing. And she's not the type of person you would envision being into horse racing. And by the end of the conversation, she was all the way in. And she's like, I can't wait. And she's on the Canterbury website. <laughs> she's like looking how far it is from their house to the track. And so uh, it's great. And I'm heading up there this summer to take them out to the track together. So uh, those are great moments i think just to get people excited about it and hopefully we get some winners up there this summer one track i've never been to but I have a friend out there uh marshall sterling who uh, i've had on the show plenty plenty oh, yeah. plenty of times so should get out there to see marshall sooner rather than later but what do you say we jump into these first of three races that uh we had decided to pick out for this week's pod we're gonna start with race number eight from the fairgrounds and optional 80 n1x 10160 miles on the dirt i thought this race was super interesting in the fact that it wasn't so much that I wanted to take a long shot, but the fact that a lot of the horses that were going to be lower on the odds board all had a shot, which then means, you know, how much are you going to take a favorite, like a horse like Banishing? When they go from a 65 to a 90, that's super scary for me. Just this one showed speed last time and a very, very fast pace figure, but I was looking somewhere different. I thought first defender for me with Johnny V being a pace presser, Steve Asmussen having that nice pace pressing win last time out was also bet off the board in that race, but had some decent works. I thought this one was going to kind of be more of an interesting approach. Dennington was one for me that didn't make the final cut, but had the class, you know, Lacombe, Smarty Jones, Kentucky Jockey Cup. All those races maybe didn't have the speed figures, but classed up really well. Some others in here, I mean, Caligriastro, Sherry DeVoe, who I love to death, but 65 to a 69, now running into... This type of level did break the maiden, but didn't have the kind of figures I really wanted with this type. I wanted someone more up front. I thought first defender was going to be that horse for me. What about you, Matthew? Yeah, so this one, I think you and I saw this race similarly in a lot of ways in that I was also very skeptical of banishing uh, that big speed jump you mentioned uh, usually is a red flag for me, uh, particularly in maiden races, and just felt like this horse just got the jump, had the perfect trip. And also Mobster, who finished second in that race, did not come back particularly strong, finished a disappointing fourth next time out. Uh, for me, first defender was a horse that I was high on, but I just also felt that this horse was maybe rushed a little bit, had just broken his bane at six furlongs and now stretching out to a mile and a 16th. I thought that might be a little too much too soon against a really good field. Ultimately, I went with uh, Dennington and Kyostro as my top two picks. Dennington, I felt like, was getting the class drop, uh, and I, I felt like not enough was being talked about that. This was a horse that had run in the LeCompte in a grade two race in a $250,000 listed stakes race the last three times out. was also getting Lasix, which is a winning move for Ken McPeak, uh, and so I thought this there should have been a little bit of pace in this race, and I thought that Dennington's running style kind of worked in that regard. Kyostra was a little bit of a shot for me, but I really like that initial maiden debut race that Kyostro was in very strong at Saratoga comes back off a really long layoff and you're right the speed figure wasn't overwhelming but horse was pinched a little bit at the start and was a little further back than I think uh, he normally would be and I just felt like second off the bench off a pretty significant layoff I thought you were going to see that progression of buyer speed figure and I thought I was also looking at two horses sitting off the pace a little bit because I thought between banishing first defender uh, and one of the other long shots that it might be uh, a pace that might get a little too aggressive. Again, going to mile 16th for some of these horses for the first time, like horses coming from off the pace. And, and not only that, but something that I always was brought up when I was first handicapping fairgrounds back in the OTBs, I can't tell you how many times the first few weeks I was wagering there. My horse is 3-4 in the lead, turning for home. That's a long stretch, man. And I feel like so much like 
we always talk about speed on the dirt, speed, front runners. And this is the one track where I do think it tends to be more of those guys who are three, four, five, and six off of the pace. They just have that extra little longer time to get there. And you brought up something as well with Dennington. No instant coffee today. Right. Victory victory (laughs) formation, two back, but three by six, $250,000 stake. Listen, that's better than this class. Four by 10 and five by one a quarter. I mean, this horse had been, like you had said, the class, and now it goes into allowance pose for the first time. And if you look through, maiden winner, maiden winner, maiden 50 winner, you know, 80 optional and tap its shoes. But I mean, that figure is not terrifying. Wasn't proving. First Mm -hmm. defender just broke the maiden. Like this one's facing a bunch that had just won for the first time or had one allowance. And the fact that we're getting eight to one, I, I feel, and we'll talk about this obviously after the race, but I could not believe the odds on this horse and what people were so afraid of. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, I felt like this was a race where the other thing that uh, I think first defender got a lot of people excited. Banishing got a lot of people excited. I think it's also important to sometimes see how a larger narrative fits into a race. The last few weeks we had seen really good optional claiming races on the undercard of Derby prep days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a horse like Tappet Trice, for instance, at the Holy Bull, a lot of people were very excited about. We So we saw this before, and I think a lot of people circled this race as this is a race with potential Kentucky Derby implications, and who were the kind of two flashiest horses to some extent were first defender and banishing. So I think a lot of public money and public sentiment went that direction. Dennington kind of felt like, and also ran to, to some extent. Well, we'd seen Dennington. We kind of know what he is. And uh, people weren't very excited about him and were more excited about first defender and banishing. So I think that's another reason why he kind of slipped under the radar. Let us see. Perelu Gutierrez as they enter the first turn. First defender right there with Hull in a hurry. Seven furlongs to run. Cayostro right at the leader's heels. Tappet shoes in the red cap is third in between horses as Banishing in the Godolphin Blue strides up nicely outside that pair with six furlongs to run. Then it's a break of six more to Dennington, who in turn has six more to Hunter's Drive, who's drifted back to last. 24.21 for the lead part, making this backstretch run five furlongs to go. It's Hull in a hurry narrowly. Tappet shoes right there between horses. John Velasquez and first defender in the three path nearing the half mile pole. In the meantime, Tyler Gaffleone and Banishing just tracking them from fourth in the clear. Then comes Cayostro, Dennington, and pulled up with Hunter's Drive. Hunter's Drive pulled up. Half mile in 47.99 seconds. They round the far turn. And that's first defender who's taken a short lead from at the inside. Tappet shoes with Banishing. Now making three path progress. But it's first defender who leads for Johnny V at the quarter pole. And Cayostro's right there. Cayostro now moves up boldly between horses to engage Banishing. But it's first defender who led past the quarter pole. Three quarters in one minute 12.56 seconds. First defender's in front. One for long to go. Short lead first defender. Here's Cayostro who bears down on first defender. Went toward the inside. Tappet shoes. Dennington, Banishing is fifth. They're close to home. It's Cayostro. Dennington on the outside who's lifting late for Corey Lannery. Dennington, and Dennington beats Cayostro home. Tappet shoes third and first defender finish fourth. Who gets it done here in the eighth? Coming up right now. Barrelo Gutierrez as they enter the first turn. First defender right there with Hull in a hurry. Seven furlongs to run. Cayostro right at the leader's heels. Tappet shoes in the red cap is third in between horses as Banishing in the Godolphin blue strides up nicely outside that pair with six furlongs to run. 
Then it's Sabrinka, six more to Dennington, who in turn has six more to Hunter's Drive, who's drifted back to last. 24.21 for the lead part, making this backstretch run five furlongs to go. It's all in a hurry, narrowly. Tappet shoes right there between horses. John Velasquez and first defender in the three path, nearing the half mile pole. In the meantime, Tyler Gaffleone in banishing, just tracking them from fourth in the clear. Then comes Cayostro, Dennington, and pulled up with Hunter's Drive. Hunter's Drive pulled up. Half mile in 47. Point 99 seconds, they round the far turn. And that's first defender, who's taking a short lead from at the inside, Tappet Shoes, with Banishing, now making three-path progress. But it's first defender, who leads for Johnny V at the quarter pole. And Kyostro's right there. Kyostro now moves up boldly between horses to engage Banishing, but it's first defender, who led past the quarter pole. Three quarters in one at 12, point 56 seconds. First defender's in front, one for long to go. Short lead, first defender, here's Kyostro who bears down on first defender, went toward the inside, Tappet Shoes, Dennington, Banishing is fifth, they're close to home, it's Kyostro, Dennington on the outside, who's lifting late for Corey Lannery, Dennington, and Dennington beats Kyostro home. Tappet Shoes third, and first defender, finish fourth. One, and Dennington does get the job done, 1860, the winning mutual, 91, the winning buyer, Caliestro runs second, Tappet Shoes running third. And something with Tappet Shoes as well, if you look back on the debut, lost to Dennington. Now you have a horse that classed up like that, and this one was also improving. Runs a solid third at 6-1. to one. Two, The two favorites, fourth and fifth. And, I mean, I guess I'm more excited that first defender improved the buyer and banishing just went right back to usually when you see a high figure like that of a 90 and then a 65, they usually run something in the middle of that, and that's exactly what mm-hmm. happened here. And... Well, that's not a fit, full safe idea and plan. Like, don't expect every time for that to happen. This just worked out in this race because I'm not going to take even money on a horse where I don't really know what kind of buyer I'm expecting here, except that I know it's probably going to go down and not up unless we're dealing with the next gun runner or justify. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, 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 the amount of public money that came in on banishing just really made that horse unbettable, in my opinion. And yeah, Dennington just, I think the Kyostro and Dennington just, had the trips and uh you know that's a long stretch run and dennington used every single inch of it to get up there at the end uh and uh, had the pace set up i thought that he needed and again showed that class that kind of grinding ability and that's what you saw a little bit with the previous race with the lecompte with instant coffee where you know that's a horse that you know again just kind of grinds away grinds away and uh dennington did the same thing today and, and got the better of it and I think for people going forward as well, when everyone's like, well, okay, how, how are we going to mark, you know, notes for this race? I would just say pace probably made the race in here. I think that when two front runners, like as they were, maybe they don't class up so much, but when, I mean, Dennington made, made the move, it was a pretty strong move. And he, obviously Corey just gets him up, but mm-hmm. I mean, holding in a hurry, 89 to one, that horse backed right up. But first defender was second, second, third and fourth, you know, they run second, third and fourth, but Really, only one horse made a move, and that was Dennington. And a lot of times when I see this type of thing, this to me just feels like a horse that outclassed the rest. Just kind of, you know, wanted the win. And a lot of times you see horses just run, and they're already running for second. And this horse, I feel like, has a nose for the wire. And nice pick by you as well on Dennington as well. Yeah, it just, uh, I think you're right. Just uh, in terms of what do we take out of this race, I think Dennington just, yeah, being a a class above some of these horses, you know, Kyostro and... 
first defender and banishing all facing winners for the first time. It's a it's a tall task. And I think those first four, though, are all really good horses and are going to continue to take steps forward. So I'm excited to see, like you, first defender taking a slight progression with the speed figure as well, taking two turns for the first time. I, I do think he's got a very bright future, even if he didn't win today. I will say this. Look out for banishing if they don't come back to the fairgrounds. There's still that 92 back. This one obviously had some very, very high, you know, potential. If they don't end up on like a long, like I said, the long, you know, straightaway there. I feel that this one could be a little bit sneaky and went off even money. Now they'll make give this money back. This horse would be Mm -hmm. like five to two, seven to two, somewhere in there. You might get a little sneaky play there. But let's move on to race number 12 from the fairgrounds. It's the grade to Rachel Alexandra. One one sixteen miles on the dirt. Still had a big favorite in here in Hoosier Philly. And there's not to say there's nothing to like about this one. Has amazing works coming in at the fairgrounds. Slow, slow buyer progression. 76, 76, 81. Had the time off, though. And we've always heard when you see time off like that from two to three, usually we see a big jump forward. There wasn't much to really say that there wouldn't be. Except I kind of thought pretty mischievous who had run in the untappable and had the race over the surface was a little bit more interesting here with the 80. And like we had already seen, sometimes when you have a difference of track and the horse that hasn't raced over the track, it's hard to bet a horse when they just get absolutely bet under even money like that. Yeah. And I, this is, a race where I also had a lot of skepticism about Hoosier Philly. Uh, I, I just thought this was a horse, you know, 11 to one in Kentucky Derby futures right now. I just, the hype around this horse just didn't match what I was seeing on the past performances. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the buyer speed figure, and it should be pointed out, uh, Hoosier Philly, three perfect trips and three phenomenal performances. One of the things that I always, and an angle that I actually like to play sometimes is betting against horses who've had nothing but perfect trips because the idea is that that can't possibly continue. And a lot of times going back to the last year, for instance, a horse that I loved was simplification Mm -hmm. because he blew the break at the Holy bull and then managed to still come up for second place in that race and showed something one next time out in the fountain of youth, a horse this year that I'm interested in is giant mischief blew the break at the springboard mile, Mm -hmm. still managed to close really strong and finish second. I like horses that show if plan A doesn't work out, they have a plan B in their back pocket. And with Hoosier Philly, I just don't know what that plan B is. And so I'm a little bit skeptical of what she's going to be capable of doing if she doesn't get a perfect race set up. Ultimately, uh, my top pick in this race is Chop Chop. Uh, I thought the Blinkers would really be beneficial. This is a horse that I'm having a hard time quitting. Uh, I really like this horse a lot, and I want this horse to be so much better perhaps than she is. But uh, I just felt like this is a race where you know, a smaller field, she won't give herself as much uh, trouble falling too far back. I, I was at least relatively pleased with her effort last time out. Uh, and then the other horse that I think is worth mentioning in this race was Miracle, which was really the lone speed. And the question was whether or not Miracle was good enough to hold on uh, and whether she had the talent to really take him gate to wire, because on paper, she should have had the perfect trip and, you know, getting the trainer change to Todd Pletcher's barn, but obviously running against open company in terms of non-state restricted races for the first time. I think as well. And for, for me, obviously being a buyer speed figure, I chop chop should just sprint off the page to me with an 88 last time out, but 88 buyer only two wins on turf so far has yet to win on dirt, but it has good figures. Mm-hmm. Why did this horse go from eight to five to seven or three to one almost like I, I, that was so scary to me when I w- look back watching this race. Hoosier Philly gets bet off the board. 
it doesn't really leave much. And something for me, and we can talk, we'll talk about after the race is just how good Todd Pletcher does off layoffs like this <laughs> with these types of horses that he never wins with, but always hits the board in some fashion that just always seems to mess up verticals or whatever. I'm when I'm trying to wager them as well. But I think like you had said, a horse like chop chop had, you know, the two decent races last year, had the nose loss at the Alcibiades to a wonder wheel. I just, when he lose by one length in a listed stake race at under four to five, and then you don't get bet. Like, you know, everyone just jumped over from the fo- from the four mm-hmm. to the two horse. It's just super scary for me in that instant. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and sometimes, you know, when we watch the board, I know this is something that happens to me all the time where I handicap a card, I'll feel good about my picks or at least relatively good about my picks. And then I start watching the money come in on the race. And all of a sudden I realize like, oh my God, the, the public knows something I don't yeah. uh, in some instances. And so you're right. When you start seeing a horse that you like and some, you know, float up, uh, that can be a little concerning because you're like, uh, maybe there's something here that I shouldn't have uh, gone with. Let us see who takes their next step towards the Oaks right now they're off and the 2023 rachel alexandra stakes and hoosier philly appeared to bobble at the start vava broke sharp there's miracle going for the early bid up to engage vava as they enter the first turn with pretty mischievous and the godolphin blue hoosier philly and behind Phillies toward the inside for Edgar Morales with seven furlongs to run. In the meantime, here's Chop Chop making progress now on the outside for Florent Giroux. Chop Chop up to Miracle as these three-year-old Phillies go to the back of this historic New Orleans track. Knock your socks off and Hoosier Philly has drifted back to be last. The first quarter covered in 25.02 seconds. Now at the five and a half, it's Miracle. So Miracle dictates the field. Leads a close-up. Chop Chop. Pretty mischievous moves up between Phillies and Vava holds her position from the rail as Miracle leads them toward the half mile pole. The trailers knock your socks off, and who's your Philly making her seasonal bow at two to five, still held up in last. The half mile for the front runner, Miracle, 48.85 seconds. Miracle remains the 13 to one target with three furlongs to go. Miracle in front by two from Petty Mischievous, who's vying for second with Chop Chop as they come toward the quarter pole. Now Hoosier Philly gets her cue on the far outside. She's making four-path progress, Hoosier Philly. In the meantime, Vava comes up the rail. Miracle straightens them past the quarter pole in front. Ducks her socks off his last. Three quarters in one minute, 13.05 seconds. Miracle tackled by Pretty Mischievous. Pretty Mischievous has nosed in front here for Tyler Gaffleone. It's a short lead. It's Pretty Mischievous leaning in on Miracle as they Come past the 16th. Hoosier Philly is third, but well beaten. Pretty Mischievous just in front from a game miracle. Pretty Mischievous. And Pretty Mischievous does get the job done. 83 the winning buyer, looking at 18-20 for the winning mutual. And like I had kind of talked about before, Miracle running second, 13-1. Second longest shot on the board. Just Todd always seems to know how to get these horses to just (laughs) improve that little bit more to get the job done. Tough race for me as I didn't have the exact, did have a sm- small win mutual on Pretty Mischievous, which was nice, but Hoosier Philly running third as well. Had a little bit of a bobble at the break, and mm-hmm. like I said, that was also the first time at Fairgrounds. I think Fairgrounds is really a, a track where horse for course really comes into play a lot. Yeah, and Hoosier Philly, you know, should also be pointed out, had only ever run at Churchill Downs prior to this as well. Another course that... I think can be a little bit of horse for course. I see that with a horse like obligatory was always a horse that just ran great at Churchill, uh, but not necessarily anywhere else. And so 
you know, trying a new track for the first time. And uh, as I mentioned before the race, facing adversity. And how was that going to work out? And this is a horse who was not a particularly large field. There was a stumble at the start, but she just didn't really look comfortable through that first turn and really down the backstretch. And by the time she got out in the clear outside of the third, fourth turn, it just didn't seem like she had much else left underneath her. And so, uh, you know, is one of those, it's a learning experience. I think she'll come back with a better effort next time out. But, uh, you know, I think the hype train on her has probably slowed a little bit now. I would say that's for sure. Chop, chop, second last. Uh, nothing really to say about the, I mean, <laughs> no, there's nothing to say, but I mean, in this type of race, when you look at the board, you know, under even money, three to one, eight to one, those were your top three choices. The, the, the public had pretty much figured out what they had liked first, second, and third. Yeah. And I, I think in this race for chop chop, it just, I'm not saying you gotta go back to the drawing board, but when you start off with an 88 and you have the highest buyer speed figure by a pretty wide margin, now you're running 64, yeah. Is the 88 the aberration? Right now it is because we see, you know, 61, 64, 81, 71. Mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see where this one ends up next time. I would say off of this race, I'm more excited about Miracle next time than a horse like Chop Chop. Absolutely. No, Miracle, I think, was really exciting. I think Chop Chop might be headed back to the turf, uh, which is where perhaps she's ultimately best. Uh, and I just feel like she's a horse where, looking back on it, the addition of blinkers might not have been the right move. And especially in a small field where she it, she didn't have to be that forwardly placed yeah. in a six horse field. There's not a lot of it's not going to be a strung out pack. And so the, if she if it was a 10, 12, 14 horse field, sure, I get putting blinkers on, make sure she, maybe she's a little bit more engaged and a little bit more forwardly placed. I just felt like she was over anxious to get to the lead early and never really looked all that settled. And I, I just think the blinkers may have been counterproductive in this particular spot, but I agree with you. I'll be interested to see where she lends up next. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a surface switch, but yeah, sign me up for some Todd Pletcher with miracle. I am very <laughs> big fan of that horse. It just, I feel bad for people who bet that one up top because just lost there at the end. Let's move on to the last race of this pod race. Number 13, the race everyone wants to hear us talk about great two risen <laughs> star one on miles on the dirt gigantic field here have the favorite more on the outside which for me was already a negative i ended up going uh too deep here with a little wind dutch i thought horses like two fills larry valley coming out of that lecompte race this is another one if you literally see since the beginning all the way back in june of last year has never ran a decreased fire speed figure ran a nice five furlong work as a bullet one of 10 59 and four as the last workout on february 8th Thought a horse like Harlow capped the five for Asmussen as well. Coming out of that maiden win, had some strong six furlong works uh, previously under the uh, trainership of Bob Baffert. We all know how Bob likes to get them to go pretty quick out of the gate. I wanted one that would show a little bit of speed. I thought the 85 was a little bit interesting here. Nothing else in this race really scared me. Angel of Empire, I thought, was another interesting one. 70 and 85, the last two, had that nice, solid class to back up against some of these maiden horses. But in all, the last horse I kind of wanted, all the horses I circled, would have been victory formation. That 13 ended up going off as the favorite. What about you, Matt? Yeah, so I played two fills and Tappet's Conquest up top in an exacta uh, with, let's see, with Single Ruler and Angel of Empire and uh, Krupi underneath. And uh, two fills, you covered it. I thought this is a horse that, I just had been progressing really nicely. A horse that every single time I looked at his PPs, just I came a little bit bigger of a fan. Second back off of the layoff. You mentioned the really strong works that Rebelli's had this horse going for uh, and has been keeping great company. So 
I, I really like this horse. The other thing to point out is this was a race where there was going to be a lot of pace. Determinedly, Harlow Cap and um, Victory Formation all were going to be very forwardly placed. And I, all of them, I had questions about the distance. And so for me, one of the things I did when I looked at this race is I really looked at any horse that was going to be in the top three or four and just automatically tossed them from my selections mm -hmm. because I just said I the winner is going to be coming from mid-pack or further back. And so that made it a little bit easier for me to narrow down. I thought Tappet's Conquest was very interesting. Uh, second back from a layoff, really had closed strong undeterminedly uh, that last time out. And uh, I, I thought just would see that nice progression uh, coming back for Brad Cox. Second back from the layoff was always a winning move. And then single ruler, I just thought was an interesting horse. Finally broke its maiden last time, but seemed like maybe it unlocked something at a really big price for Keith Tersormo. Uh, the 79 buyers isn't maybe overwhelming in this field, but like I said, there was kind of a solid steady progression there from that horse. Uh, and then angel of empire. Yeah, absolutely. was interesting to me. I know, you know, that gallop out in the Smarty Jones was, I think, particularly telling as Angel of Empire went past victory formation after the finish line. And Brad Cox was on record for saying this horse likes as much distance as you want to give him, the more distance, the better. So I figured stretching out to nine furlongs in a pace in a race that's going to have a lot of pace, Angel of Empire certainly made some sense there. I think as well, and you talked about the gallop out and stuff like that. But and I'm someone who you know I'm I'm more old school with the basics. I look at Tomlinson's that 294 and the distance there for victory formation was a little bit scary, even though out of Tappert, tap it. We know this one should like to go at least this far, maybe not extra farther than that. You said you said something as well. Just when you're breaking down a race like this, there's 14 horses. Eliminating horses to get it based down to. Uh, in this type of race, I'll probably do three or four sweeps in the past performances before I finally come up with an idea and a plan on what to wager. And I feel like mm -hmm. what hurts so many beginning time horse racing, just handicappers in general, they're, they go, they look through all 14 horses, they circle two they think they like. But then like mm -hmm. at, when they get there the day of, they're like, oh, what about this other horse? Now this horse is getting bet, but I didn't cross him out, so <laughs> I must have liked him a little bit. And I think that hurts so many players in this game when they don't eliminate first to find contenders, whether on mm -hmm. their whether they're just trying to find a winner, say. Yeah, absolutely. This was a race where, you know, 14 horse field, I think I crossed out seven horses pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's just kind of narrowing down a little bit and looking at who do I like underneath versus who do I like up top. And uh, I think you're right. When you deal with these big fields, being able to just, you know, whether it's the pace that you don't like, whether it's speed figures you don't like, whether, you know, whatever the instance is, but just feeling confident and saying, listen, I'm drawing a line through these you know, whatever number of horses it is, and it makes the handicapping a lot more manageable. And then to your point, staying true to yourself on the day of the race is so important. Uh, don't second guess yourself so much. Uh, don't worry about where all the other money's coming in necessarily. Uh, you know, if you if you feel good about the way you handicap the race, stick to your plan. Don't start bloating up your tickets because, you know, somebody says this horse might be good or you heard online this other horse might be good. And, you know, that's how you end up with some caveman ticket that costs, you know, 240 bucks in a horizontal or something like that. Listen, caveman tickets. I've I've seen the best. I've seen the worst. <laughs> my, my my way I learned bankroll management. I've said this on the podcast enough, but I'm, you haven't heard it. Was picking up bad tickets outside the OTB where my dad bartended. So I oh my God. I, I, I learned real quick on a certain ticket structure on what what to do and what not to do. But yeah, I, I mean, we pretty much covered everyone else in this. And like you had said, you crossed out seven horses pretty quickly. When you're looking at seven instead of fourteen, and the one thing in a way that I think might hurt someone is when they cross out seven, maybe they forget that there is still 14 horses going to the gate and that post position matters in this type of race. Right. 
But I think yep. we covered everything pretty well right there. So let us see who gets done here in the grade two Risen Star coming back right now. And the Risen Star stakes. Shaq Diesel going out toward the lead. Here's Determinedly Speed. Right there is Harlow Cap along with Victory Formation and Private Creed also comes up on the outside. The scramble on to the first turn. It's Determinedly Harlow Cap and three wide victory formation in the red cap as they round the first turn with seven for longs to run. Shaq Diesel in fourth with on the outside. Private Creed in fifth as these leaders go to the back of the track. Curly Jack is a ground saving sixth. Two fill seventh in between horses. Then comes the gray silver heist with Angel of Empire saving ground. A break of two more to tap its conquest. Who's two in front of Sun Thunder. Single ruler we trail back to quiet at midnight and the maiden. Croupy has drifted back to be 14th and last. The first two of nine furlongs covered in 23. Point thirty-four seconds. They have five furlongs to run. And it's Determinedly. Who leads here for Relu Gutierrez. Determinedly in front. Trekked by Harlow Cap. Shaq Diesel in third. Victory formation in the clear from fourth. As they go past the half-mile pole now in the Risen Star Stakes. Two fills looks to gain in between horses. As they round the far turn. Private Creed is wide. Curly Jack buried toward the inside. Angel of Empire starts to gain. Angel of Empire moving up in between horses. With inside three furlongs to go. The half-mile went in 47.50 seconds. Three quarters in 1 minute 12.21 seconds. These leaders coming toward the quarter pole. It's Harlow Cap as two fills looms up on the outside toward the rail. Looking to stay this pace as they straighten for home is determinedly with under a quarter of a mile to run. Coming down toward the final furlong. Two fills. Harlow Cap. Sun Thunder gets through toward the inside as they come down toward the final 16th. Getting in between horses. Angel of Empire and farther out is Tabbitt's Conquest who's also mustering a late rally past the 16th. And here's Angel of Empire for Luis Saez. Angel of Empire in the Risen Star Stakes. Angel of Empire. Angel of Empire gets the job done. 89, the winning buyer. Looking at 29.40 as the winning mutual. And I, th I think for me, going over these last two prep races for Oaks and Derby, 89 is a pretty good figure right here this early. I don't know if we saw the Derby winner in this field. And I I say that, and I hate when people say that on, on all the shows, Naira, all these Churchill Downs shows when they say that. I thought this was a very competitive race, and I thought this was the type of race that this is the reason why you go to the track on a Saturday afternoon. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. A, a great race. And I always try to differentiate that in my mind between a race that might feature elite horses or, to your point, like the future Kentucky Derby winner versus just super competitive races that are just fun to watch. Mm -hmm. I mean, coming down the stretch, it was thrilling to see, like, was two fills going to get there? Was Tappet's Conquest going to close? All of a sudden, here comes Sun Thunder. Here comes Angel of Empire. It's fun to watch those types of races to see the excitement and I think a really competitive field uh, between the, the 14 of them and the pace set up to really, I think, make an exciting closing stretch run for these horses. I will say, turning for home, I was excited to see Harlow Cap where that one was and also where two fills was. But again, that long stretch, you know, it always just comes yeah. straight down to that the last 200 yards, I would say. And looking back at Angel of Empire, this is a horse that in the beginning time when I was handicapping as a beginner, this is a horse I would cross out. And unfortunately, I crossed out again here. But at least I had somewhat of a note on this one that, you know, was improving almost every time out. The last three were improving. Had run on the Samari Jones. And listen, two by three, losing the victory formation, who we didn't like here, was also yeah. much farther outside. This is a horse that I think at 13 to 1 was. Listen, that 13 to 1, most of them are overlays, but I'm surprised this one wasn't underneath 10 to 1. 
Yeah, I'm a little surprised too, because there was a lot of buzz around the track about Angel of Empire. And this was a horse I was using underneath. And you know, I was thrilled to see that uh, you know, he ran well. I would have liked him to be underneath, but that's all right. Uh he's allowed to win. And mm-hmm. so uh, but yeah, I was surprised that at 13 to 1, uh, you got those odds. I mean, th- there's kind of too good to pass up to some extent uh on the day of the race because this horse absolutely has ability. And you know, I think it's shown that solid progression that you like to see from horses from the layoff, you know, went from a 70 to an 85 the last two times out and obviously took another step up again here. So, you know, especially for a trusted barn and Brad Cox and you got Louis Saez aboard the two of them, what do they win? They win 50% of the time together. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's a strong jockey trainer combo that I think a lot of people like to play. And, you know, people, a lot of times you'll hear people talk about those jockey stats or trainer stats at the bottom of the page here. But jockey trainer stats to me are if you find contenders and you're stuck between three of them, that's mm-hmm. a really nice way for me to differentiate, like, who I want to put on top or who, you know. The reason that I'm not putting the 8% jockey on top a lot of the times is the way I do my handicapping is, you know, I make an odds line. So if I have two horses, you know, one might be 2 to 1, one might be 4 to 1 or 3 to 1. And if it comes down to they're pretty even, I'm going to want the guys who are winning at 50%, not the guys who are winning at <laughs> 18%, whether the ROI is exponentially better. Because in the long run, you know, everyone knows that the, the quote-unquote, the, the, the juice involved in betting Irad in New York or betting Pratt out, you know, when he was out west yeah. or Saez down with Fletcher in Florida. That's the way that you can go broke quick if you're not implementing the basics of the pillars first. But mm-hmm. when you can start to add that little wrinkle in to start making differences in your opinions, that's where you can start to, you know, you're not betting 8% jockeys and trainers at low odds. You're taking them more at the 8 to 1 shots that they need to be taken at. Exactly. Exactly right. That I wouldn't have looked through this field and landed on Angel Empire because of jockey trainer stats. But at 8 to 1 on the morning line and 13, one, 13 to 1 at post time, yeah, that will be absolutely be a, something that sways me uh, towards Angel of Empire, seeing that just a winning combination up there. So when you can get that sort of winning combination uh, as a jockey trainer on a horse that's giving you a really big price, certainly something to be uh, pleased with. I will say, I, I just want to give a shout out to my boy, uh, Two Phils, who is reminding me so much of my horse that I like last year, Simplification, mm-hmm. and that he's just a really honest horse who probably is not going to win that much, uh, but it's just going to finish underneath and keep teasing me from race to race, and I'll probably end up keep betting him to some extent from race to race. I have a hard time quitting my favorites, uh, but he just feels like a hard-knocking horse who's probably going to end up in the uh, starting gate of the Kentucky Derby because I have a feeling he's just going to keep racking up Kentucky Derby points, finishing second or third in some of these future prep races. And those are the ones that are always interesting because they always somehow end up third or fourth in the Derby, even then. Right. And there's still some massive price that you just can't comprehend. But one one last question that I did want to bring up here in this race, yeah. you said like you sometimes have these horses underneath that end up winning. How does that, like, obviously you're not making money, but do you then get more conscientious of it the next few races? Like, man, I keep betting these horses for second. They keep winning. Like, does it kind of put like a befuddlement to your handicapping or is it just kind of like you just keep going strong with your ideology? It's a good question. I think in this particular case, I keep going strong with my perspective because the race played out the way I thought it did in that pace broke down up front. Everybody from mid-pack and further back was, ended up being the winner in this race. So I ended up with the wrong one up top, but the, the, the way I got there, the logic I applied to this race ultimately played out. Now, if I start seeing the ball wrong, so to speak, if I if I start kind of missing the race shape in a lot of instances, that's when I really start rethinking things and going, wait a second, am I 
what am I doing here? Do I need to kind of shake things up a little bit? But the fact that this one played out roughly the way I did might have lost up top, but this was, you know, one where in my exact I had four of the top five horses, just didn't have Sun Thunder there. So uh, ultimately, relatively pleased with how I saw this race, even if I didn't win. Sometimes even when you lose, you win. What a perfect way to end <laughs> the podcast here. I do want to thank my special guest, Matthew DeSantis. Matthew, where can people find you on Twitter? Where can people find you for your show with Trust the Profits? Let people know what the dealio is with that. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Uh, and so people can find me on Twitter at the handle at failed to menace, my favorite running line. And uh, you can find me if you follow me on Twitter, you can find all my content that I do for Trust the Profits on YouTube. So I uh, have a weekly recap show called The Win Play Show. I also have a show that comes out on Friday morning called Capping the Card, where I go through every single race on a card typically a big Saturday stakes card. I give you my top pick, my top value play for all those races, myself and a guest. So a lot of fun. Uh, make sure to check it out. And Spencer, thank you again for having me on. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to having you on in the future. Thank you so much. Like I said, I want to thank everyone who listens to this podcast and the rest of the podcast on the, in the money media network. Also want to thank my special guest, Matthew DeSantis for coming on talking all things fairgrounds with me on that loaded stakes card from this past Saturday. This show has been a production of In the Money Media. In the Money Media's present is Pierre Thomas Pornetail. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In the Money Media business manager is Drew Cotney. I'm Spencer Luganbeel. We will see you next time.